0: Welcome back to The Hemingway List, the podcast of Hemingway Excellence. Here to talk about chapter 81, TLDR, too long, didn't read, it was a hospital. i got to say that previous chapter, um, chapter 81, was a real snooze fest. Sometimes, some chapters in this book, it's done it a couple of times, where he sort of just describes the inner workings of an institution or an organization there was a chapter earlier on which was the i think it was like the university or the senior school of some kind that he went to and there was just this chapter describing like what had happened there um sort of before he got there and like you know the politics around who the principal was and how they'd gotten that position the headmaster i should say it just kind of I don't know. It just went on. It just went on, and then it didn't matter going forth beyond that chapter. It really didn't matter, and I just feel like this was the same thing. Like I, he's just spent a whole chapter describing, you know, the semantics of this hospital, who's the top dog, who's in charge, what they do, and now I just feel like going forward, it's not going to matter. I'd love to be proven wrong, but I don't think I will. Swim said the mama fish this, sorry, <laughs> Swim said the mama Fishy said this. Well, this was a bottle episode. Fun fact, the author did not want to become a lawyer like other men in his family, so he trained and qualified as a physician. His first novel, Lisa of Lambeth, 1897, sold out so rapidly that Morgan gave up medicine to write full-time. I accidentally just said his name, goddammit. Lisa of of Lambeth was his first novel, which he wrote while he was a medical student and obstetric clerk at St. Thomas Hospital in Lambeth, then a working-class district of London. It depicts the short life and death of Lisa Kemp, an 18-year-old factory worker who lives with her aging mother in the fictional Vera Street off Westminster Bridge Road, which is real, in Lambeth. Okay, so real um, Somerset, the author in real life wrote a book while he was a student at St. Thomas's Hospital. and Philip is now a student at St. Thomas's Hospital. So if this is going to be one of those, if the or if sorry, if the protagonist is going to become an author, this is where it's going to happen. And I would love to see that. I would love to see Philip sit down and start writing some good literature. Acoustic Eel says, The creator of Scrubs must have read this chapter and gotten the idea for the show. A hospital show that will make you laugh, cry and think. I'm happy that Philip is happy and engaged in his work. Laura Weistitch said, I've never thought about describing people as having small heads before. Two chapters in a row now, we are introduced to characters with very small heads. Um, By the way, we missed, I think it was the day before yesterday's chapter. Was it yesterday's chapter? We missed a Persian rug count. There was a Persian rug mentioned two chapters back. And I didn't mention it because I thought one of you would. But no one did. Very disappointed, guys. You really dropped the ball on that one. Um, But luckily, I'm keeping score. Add one to the tally. Okay, let's read the next chapter. See how we go. It's chapter eighty-two. We must be getting towards the end, are we? We're probably. Oh, we're about three quarters of the way through the book. So it is a long book. I reckon there'd be at least. I reckon there'd be about a hundred and. I don't know. I'm going to say one hundred and ten-ish chapters, just just based on, on what I'm seeing lengthwise. All right, eighty-two. Towards the end of the year, when Philip was bringing to a close his three months as clerk in the outpatients department, he received a letter from Lawson, who was in Paris. Dear Philip, Cronshaw is in London and would be glad to see you. He is living in 43 Hyde Street, Soho. I don't know where it is, but I dare say you'll be able to find out. Be a brick and look after him a bit. He is very down on his luck. He will tell you what he's doing. Things are going on here very much as usual. Nothing seems to have changed since you were here. Clutton is back, but he has become quite impossible. He has quarreled with everybody. As far as I can make out, he hasn't got a cent. He lives in a little studio right away, beyond the Jardin de Plantes, but he won't let anybody see his work. He doesn't show anywhere, so one doesn't know what he is doing. He may be a genius, but on the other hand... He may be off his head. By the way, I ran against Flanagan the other day. He was showing Mrs. Flanagan around the quarter. He has chucked art and is now in Popper's business. He seems to be rolling. Mrs. Flanagan is very pretty and I'm trying to work a portrait. How much would you ask if you were me? I don't want to frighten them. And then on the other hand, I don't want to be such an ass as to ask Al 150 if they're quite willing to pay Al 300. Yours ever, Frederick Lawson. Philip wrote to Cronshaw and received in reply the following letter. It was written on a half-sheet of common notepaper, and the flimsy envelope was dirtier than was justified by its passage through the post. Dear Carey, of course I remember you very well. I have an idea that I had some part in rescuing you from the slow, slow of despond, in which myself am hopelessly immersed. I shall be glad to see you. I am a stranger in a strange city, and I am buffeted by the Philistines. It will be pleasant to talk of Paris. I do not ask you to come and see me, since my lodging is not of a magnificent fit for the reception of an eminent member of Monsieur Purgon's profession, but you will find me eating modestly any evening between seven and eight at restaurant Euclète au bon Placier in Dean Street. Yours sincerely, J. Cronshaw. Philip went the next day he received this letter. Sorry, Philip went the day he received this letter. The restaurant, consisting of one small room, was of the poorest class, and Cronshaw seemed to be its only customer. He was sitting in the corner, well away from drafts, wearing the same shabby great coat which Philip had never seen him without, and his old bowler hat on his head. "'I eat here because I can be alone,' he said. "'They are not doing well. The only people who come are a few trollops and one or two waiters out of a job.' They are giving up business and the food is execrable. But the ruin of their fortunes is my advantage. Cronshaw had before him a glass of absinthe. It was nearly three years since they had met and Philip was shocked by the change in his appearance. He had been rather corpulent and now he had a dried up yellow look. The skin of his neck was loose and wrinkled. His clothes hung about him as though they had been bought for someone else and his collar, three or four sizes too large, added to the slatternliness of his appearance. His hands trembled continually. Philip remembered the handwriting which scrawled over the page in shapeless, half hazard letters. Cronshaw was evidently very ill. "'I eat little these days,' he said. "'I am very sick in the morning. "'I am just having some soup for my dinner, "'and then I shall have a bit of cheese.' Philip's glance... Philip's glance unconsciously went to the absinthe, and Cronshaw, seeing it, gave him the quizzical look with which he reproved the admonitions of common sense. You have diagnosed my case, and you think it's very wrong of me to drink absinthe. You've evidently got cirrhosis of the liver, said Philip. Evidently. He looked at Philip in a way in which he had formerly had the power of making him feel incredibly narrow It seemed to point out that what he was thinking was distressingly obvious, and when you have agreed with the obvious, what more is there to say? Philip changed the topic. When are you going back to Paris? I'm not going back to Paris. I'm going to die. The very naturalness with which he said this startled Philip. He thought of half a dozen things to say, but they seemed futile. He knew that Cronshaw was a dying man. Are you going to settle in London, then? He asked, lamely. What is London to me? I'm a fish out of water, I walk through the crowded streets, men jostle me, and I seem to walk in a dead city. I felt that I couldn't die in Paris, I wanted to die among my own people. I don't know what hidden instinct drew me back at last. Philip knew of the woman Cronshaw had lived with and the two draggled-tailed children, but Cronshaw had never mentioned them to him and he did not like to speak of them. He wondered what had happened to them. I don't know why you talk of dying, he said. I had pneumonia a couple of winters ago, and they told me then it was a miracle that I came through it. It appears I'm extremely liable to it, and another bout will kill me. Oh, what nonsense. You're not so bad as all that. You've only got to take precautions. Why don't you give up drinking? Because I don't choose. It doesn't matter what a man does if he's ready to take the consequences. Well, I'm ready to take the consequences. You talk glibly of drinking, of giving up drinking, but it's the only thing I've got left now. What do you think life would be to me without it? Can you understand that happiness I get out of my absence? I yearn for it, and when I drink it I savour every drop, and afterwards I feel my soul swimming in ineffable happiness. It disgusts you. You are a Puritan, and in your heart you despise sensual pleasures. Sensual pleasures are the most violent and the most exquisite. I am a man blessed with vivid senses, and I have indulged them with all my soul. I have to pay the penalty now, and I am ready to pay. Philip looked at him for a while, steadily. Aren't you afraid? For a moment Cronshaw did not answer. He seemed to consider his reply. Sometimes when I'm alone, he looked at Philip. You think that's condemnation? You're wrong. I'm not afraid of my fear. It's folly. The Christian argument that you live that you should live always in your in view of your death. The only way to live is to forget that you're going to die. Death is unimportant. The fear of it should never influence a single action of the wise man. I know that I shall die struggling for breath, and I know that I shall be horribly afraid. I know that I shall not be able to keep myself from regretting bitterly that life the, the life that has brought me to such a pass, but I disown that regret. I, now weak, old, diseased, poor, dying, hold still my soul in my hands, and I regret nothing. Do you remember that Persian carpet you gave me? asked Philip. Cronshaw smiled his old low slow smile of past days. I told you that it would give you an answer to your question when you asked me what was the meaning of life. Well, have you discovered the answer? No, smart Philip. will not you tell it to me? No, no, I can't do that. The answer is meaningless unless you discover it yourself. Alrighty, there we go. Cronshaw, not looking good for old Cronshaw. Have your say about this one over at the subreddit. Thanks very much for listening. I'll see you uh, tomorrow.